0: thank you for joining our podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This is really fun. Welcome to the Civil Society Futures and Innovation podcast from the International Civil Society Center. I'm Vicky Tung, Program Manager at the Center, This is the first in a mini-series of discussions we're doing this month, looking ahead at what trends and ideas could drive further future innovation in the civil society sector. We've been talking quite a bit about tools and tactics for engaging new audiences, but I'm really keen to be speaking to you about some of the psychological aspects of of those new audiences. Um... Today I'm chatting with Laura Liguri, the Executive Director and Founder of MindBridge, and we're going to talk about the insights which neuroscience could bring to the future work and communications for civil society organisations. So you founded MindBridge, which is a not-for-profit specifically to connect these uh, insights from psychology and neurobiology to uh, other non-profit and humanitarian efforts and organisations. Can you tell me what your work focuses on and and what you think these insights bring to these organisations?
1: So yeah, MindBridge's mission is ultimately to strengthen human rights outcomes by using all of this science that we find in psychology and neuroscience. Um, so the question that usually comes out is, all right, so what's the connection then between psychology, neuroscience, and human rights? Um, and when I talk to human rights defenders, what I often hear is that we're, we're talking about changing the hearts and minds of individuals and groups, right? We want to change the hearts and minds. But often what I see are efforts to um, affect structures and institutions, politics and policy. I don't often see efforts to work with the emotions, our values, our beliefs and biases. Um, and all of these things, these values, beliefs and biases act as a lens. They're a lens through which we understand and engage with the world. Um, and so all of that drives us right to psychology and neuroscience and A fun little statistic that I often have up in my talks um, when I'm presenting on this topic is that about 40 to 90 percent of everything we do is unconscious. And I often see statistics as high as even 95 percent. But even if we go on the low end of that spectrum, even if we say, you know, 50 percent, half of everything we do is unconscious, that's pretty extraordinary, right? 50 percent, half of what we're doing is unconscious. So my question to human rights defenders is, you know, how how are we tapping into these processes? How are we working with them? Are we accessing them? Do we know how to access them? So MindBridge's task then is to link all the hundreds of research labs that are out there and the thousands upon thousands of publications around psychology and neuroscience to human rights efforts. And we do this through three main pillars – whether that's through direct forms of research, whether we're assessing programs or media campaigns, or whether we're simply educating human rights defenders about these processes. Um, And we do this either in-house or we connect organizations to labs that are specialists in a certain domain. Um, So ultimately for MindBridge, This is a system of translation. We're taking all of this research that we're doing um, or that's out there and we're translating this into human rights terms. And we're applying this into all of the myriad of programs um, and campaigns that are out there to make it more um, accessible and ultimately make all of these efforts more um, influential and impactful.
0: We're definitely seeing more of more civil society actors um, and the organizations that we work with really engaging with these these insights. And I, I, I think there's definitely having that um, made available to them in ways where they can easily engage with that and they don't have to go into the depths of the research um, I think is critically important. What do you think are the particular insights that neuroscience and psychology can bring on, on these aspects?
1: Uh, there, there's a lot. You know, if I had to point to anything, um, I'd say it's sort of the relationship between uh, fear and reward. We talk a lot about fear, Right, Um, and the way in which fear has been co-opted to support and amplify populist movements, Um, and and there's a lot of reason for that. There's a lot of research to back that up. There was a really early 2003 study by Yost and colleagues, and it was really great because they analyzed data from 88 samples in 12 countries. So this is a pretty large data set, Um, and what they found was that individuals uh, experiencing um, this kind of ex- existential need to reduce threats, right? So really feeling threat and fear we're more strongly motivated to adopt what we might think of as conser- conservative ideologies. Um, and so that's that was pretty influential. And since that time, there's just been a whole plethora of research studies kind of backing that up. And more recently, related to that, there's been a whole slew of articles that have linked fear or what some have termed uh, un- united terror to the rise of populist political leaders. Um, but but here's the thing, that fear alone will only get you so far, right? So fear tends to be particularly effective when you are engaging with a population that's already stressed in some way, that's already worried. So in other words, when they're already compromised. So fear is a leveraging process um, and, and it's really leveraging processes that have already been in effect. And fear is really great when you don't want people to do something, right? When you want to stop them from engaging in an act. So, Mm. you know, there have been, I think we're all familiar with smoking campaigns, you know, that would show you like these horrible lungs, you know, or your brain on drugs, you know, or even kind of fear-based campaigns in, in human rights. So the question becomes, what do we do when we want to motivate a population towards something, right? When you want to indoctrinate new values or beliefs, that perhaps were not previously there. Um, and one thing that's been really effectively used within populism um, is reward. And this is something I haven't really seen within the human rights work out there. You know, For every one article on reward, I'm seeing you know, 30 human rights articles about fear. And reward is a really powerful motivator. Uh, It's often said that, you know, uh, two things drive human actions, right? So there's necessities, what we need, we need food, we need sleep, we're avoiding pain, and we can kind of lump fear into that. Um, And reward, right? So reward really drives human actions. Like I said, reward or pleasure have been expertly co-opted by populist movements. I don't know if you've seen this. There's this really wonderful 2018 article by Adam Sewer entitled, Uh, The cruelty is the point. President Trump and his supporters find community by rejoicing in the suffering of those they hate and fear by rejoicing in the suffering, and that really hits the nail on the head. This process of pleasure at someone else's pain, right, what some people call schadenfreude, is a really key factor in solidification and promotion of populism. It's the thing that's going to help bring communities together and what will help to really promote this kind of populist effort forward. Um, In a way, you can kind of think about populism as, And I really wish I had a better example, but it's sort of like baking a cake. You know, you've got a recipe and you have all these necessary ingredients. Fear is a necessary ingredient, but there are others. And it's really only through the combination of those other processes that you give rise to populism. And one of those big catalytic moments is going to be. Reward. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different processes that we need to talk about. Um, hopefully, we can link an article of mine called "Navigating the Storm: A Neuropsychological Map of Western Extremism," and and this is essentially a review for human rights defenders of the myriad of processes that are at play when we're talking about populism. There's also another really important article that hopefully we can link um, by Arthur Glenberg entitled How Hate Speech Breeds Hate. And the, the idea is this. If in an organization or movement um, is promoting an idea, let's just say for argument's sake, they're promoting the idea that all refugees or asylum seekers are criminals. And then human rights organizations then counter that. So what does the brain see then? Right, The brain is is repeatedly seeing Refugees, asylum seekers, criminals. Um, And importantly, especially with the advent of social media, we're exposed to these kinds of messages at an exponential rate. So research is now suggesting that the more often we see these messages, the more often we see refugees, asylum seekers, criminals, even if we're countering that, the more the brain is simulating them as we read them the more that they're being encoded, right? Mm. Um, So organizations are putting out refugees and asylum seekers are criminals. Human rights organizations are countering it. Refugees asylum seekers are not criminals. The brain is simulating refugees, asylum seekers, criminals over and Mm. over and over again. Um, And there's this old adage, right? Like practice makes perfect, (laughs) and and I think that this is unfortunately the case here, right? Your brain is practicing this; it's simulating this. Um, And in neuroscience, there's a, I think what I'm going to relate to that saying: the brain fires like it's wired, right? The brain is going to wire in a certain way with repeated habitualized practice. Um, So, in other words, that the more that we have repeated exposure to these kinds of messages, the more likely we're going to wire these concepts into our cognition. This is profoundly impactful. This suggests that even if I were to ask you, do you think refugees asylum seekers are criminals, you might consciously tell me no. But somewhere in the background, unconsciously, this is starting to make its way into your cognition and possibly someday into your behavior. So that has extraordinary implications to the ways in which we craft our messages in the human rights world, right? And that these very messages that we hope to promote human rights might actually be having the opposite effect. So that suggests that we really need to change the way we're approaching our crafting of narratives, of media campaigns. Um, Ultimately, it means that we need to think in a different way. And so this suggests that we need to craft messages that are promoting human rights, that we're now creating messages, titles, taglines, imagery that's allowing the brain to practice the process of human rights work. And and this brings us to this idea of kind of hope-based communications and putting out the messages that we hope to see in the world.
0: Could you tell me a bit more about some of the um innovative projects and responses you've also been involved in um, in some of these kind of popular populist contexts?
1: Yeah I would love nothing more than to point to 20 projects that integrate psychology and neuroscience into human rights. Yeah, um, yeah the, the reality is is that this is this is a fairly new concept. You know I do a lot of traveling and speaking on the subject largely because we're introducing something that hasn't really did, been done before right. Um, we're integrating a whole discipline into another discipline. Um, and to not integrate psychology and neuroscience, to not be aware of these processes, um, can ultimately cause really ironic effects where our campaigns backfire. So this, this is super important, super important that we do this. If I had to, if I had to point to one. And there are a few out there, but if if I had to point to one that I think um, is particularly innovative, um, I'm going to point back to the one that I already kind of commented on, Thomas's Coombs Hope-Based Communication Project. Um, Thomas, um, he and I have been talking a lot, and, and he's been going to great lengths to understand the psychology and neuroscience that underlies his work and his recommendations for when he's Teaching other human rights defenders how to make hope-based strategies Um, so he's been really doing a lot of work and integrating all of this research the psychology and neuroscience to ultimately make these kinds of media campaigns that much more effective and so that that's something that I'm I've been particularly excited about.
0: The International Civil Society Centre and Just Labs' new innovation report on how civil society is responding to populism is now available online at icscentre.org forward slash innovation report. Read it now for insights and inspiration. In, in terms of these, it, it is new, um, and perhaps there are some barriers for other organisations in being able to uh, engage with these insights. What yeah. do you think those some of those barriers are, and what, for you, would be the future opportunities that that it holds and that would need to change for organisations to really be able to engage with this more more deeply? You know, honestly, <laughs> I,
1: I hate to, to give the same answer that everybody else gives, but uh, funding. Mm.
0: You
1: know, that really you know, and really support for this kind of interdisciplinary cooperation. You, know, This work is hard, right? You know, human rights defenders have enough on their plates. They don't also need to become, you know, experts in psychology and neuroscience. So how, ultimately the question becomes, how are we going to make this work accessible, right? Um, and so, you know, there's lots of ways we've been working to try to connect labs um, and different research efforts to human rights defenders and Another way that we've been trying to do this is to create an online course because, you know, there's just a whole range of topics that are applicable to human rights. We talked about um, fear. We talked about reward. We could touch on dehumanization. We could talk about empathy. Um, And really what we want to do here at MindBridge is to create uh, kind of a multimedia platform that um, provides the kind of access to all these key psychology and neurobiological concepts that kind of underlie the work of human rights um, so we can make this kind of accessible. But, but ultimately all of that and all these great ideas come down to funding um, and those who would like to support these kind of collaborative methods. Um, so we're exploring, we're experimenting. Interdisciplinary work um, is sort of this tagline that we see, at least I see it in in kind of academic circles. It's a really popular term. Um, It can also feel really amorphous, right? A little mysterious Mm -hmm. as as to how we're going to do this. Um, And it is mysterious. It is new, right? We're we're combining disciplines that haven't had a lot to do with one another. Um, So we're exploring, we're experimenting. So funding needs to become available to allow this kind of exploration so we can see how best to work with one another and really implement uh, psychology and neuroscience tools to human rights efforts.
0: It's clearly a very flexible process though and so it has to be it it has to be within a framework a funding framework which allows that process to take time and learn and learn and adapt.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. So funding that's going to allow that kind of flexibility, because really we're crafting a new movement. We're starting a new direction forward. And so funding really needs to be made available with that kind of flexibility.
0: I, I like that idea of a, of, of a new movement. So casting your mind forward, if, if this movement gets going and it's supported and it gets the it gets both the funding support and the um, in, engagement of the organizations, what what do you th- how do you think this movement could potentially transform the sector and w- what would campaigning and activism look like in 10 years if we really are uh, ha- have the resources to engage with the insights from this uh, interdisciplinary approach?
1: Um, oh, I love that. <laughs> I, lo- I love thinking about <laughs> that. You know, in 10 years' time, what, what's possible? Oh, goodness. You know, really... If I cast my mind forward in 10 years, the, the, what I'd love to see happen is that this kind of internal landscape is made accessible. You know, I, I was doing another um, a little video project and I was being interviewed and my colleague, uh, Juan Camilo from Just Labs, he, he made this offhanded comment, but I thought it was really profound. He said, you know, this is really about speaking to the whole person. And and I kind of had to chew on that for a little bit. And, and I think he's, he's exactly right. This is exactly what we're trying to do, right? When we're talking about psychology and neuroscience, we're not asking human rights defenders to put aside all the previous tools. No, we're asking them to consider this vast world of unconscious processes, our beliefs, our values, our biases, all of this unconscious implicit realm and integrate that in to the work of human rights and so really what we're asking are for this conceptualization, a reconceptualization of the whole person in front of you. It is structures, it is institutions, it's culture, it's politics and it's our emotions, it's our values, it's our beliefs, it's our biases, it's all of this internal realm together. Um, so when I when I cast my mind forward in 10 years, I'm seeing a place where this is seamlessly integrated, where this is something that is, that is just commonplace, you know, in In the realm of business and economics, things like consumer intelligence or psychologically informed digital marketing, you know, these terms are really, really commonplace all the time when we're talking about behavior and marketing. So you wouldn't really go about a social media campaign without thinking about this. This is something I want to see happen for human rights, that this is fully integrated within the work of human rights and that we're we're really speaking to the whole person And crafting our narratives, our campaigns and programming um, using psychology and neuroscience that ultimately means that they're more effective and long lasting so that in another 10 years to come, we're seeing the kind of real changes that we want to see happen.
0: That's quite a a big concept speaking to the whole person but also speaking across uh, everyone in a population rather than just uh, particular groups or the kind of much easier binary narratives of the kind of us and them approaches of uh, of populists so i think it's a real vision and i think we are going to need help as a sector in 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 how to how to think through this and, and and how to get there.
1: That's exactly it. So moving ourselves as human rights practitioners away from the us and them to the whole person and the totality of what it means to be human because that, that's really what we're talking about when we talk about human rights.
0: got planned for the future for for Winebridge? what what will we see um aside from the um the online course which i think sounds really exciting um what other what else have you got in the pipeline
1: oh goodness gracious we always have an, a million and one projects in the pipeline but um so the online course one of the other things that i'm pretty excited about um, that we're also fundraising for um is uh, an, an Essentially, a piece of software—a piece of software that's going to help organizations to assess the implicit, unconscious psychological dynamics that are within their campaigns and programming. I think something that tends to be a little scary for organizations um, is first assessment. <laughs> it can be a little scary. We're getting into statistics there, and, and kind of a whole different realm. And, and so, there's some questions about, you know, how to how to do that. There was recently this really wonderful uh, Human Rights Watch uh, hosted the um, metrics and measures meeting a few months ago really kind of looking at how to do that so it's great that we're having this conversations. But I think even scarier still is how do we, now that we know about some psychology and neuroscience, how do we assess the impacts, right? How are we affecting this internal landscape of our participants? Um, And so we're hoping to create um, a piece of software that will help guide organizations through this process. And um, what I think is really particularly exciting about this, not only um, I think will it help to kind of support organizations in doing this work, but my hope is that through an online um, piece of software that we're then able to compare our results across sectors. So, you know, an organization working on, say, immigration in Chile or the UK can then compare their results in the United States or Germany. Um, And so being able to kind of standardize that across the different locations can really help to give us this. Wide-ranging picture of okay, how are we doing as human rights defenders and practitioners? Um, so that's that's something I can't wait to really dive into.
0: They sound like really innovative tools which will really, really add a lot of value to to what the organize, what the organizations that that we work with will be doing. So how can we keep in touch with uh, with what you're doing? There's our website.
1: So it's uh, www.mindbridgecenter.org. People, uh, I welcome your emails. If you have questions, um, you have a question for your organization, there's a topic that you'd like us to look at. That's why we're here. Feel free to email me directly. It's uh, L-L-I-G-O-U-R-I at mindbridgecenter.org.
0: Thank you very much for
1: your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks very much to Laura Liguri from MindBridge. You can check out MindBridge at mindbridgecenter.org. Until next time...